as you turn, I want to share with you something you probably have seen before when some emergency hits or a crisis is unfolding, a dangerous situation with a criminal, a scene of an accident. Ordinary citizens like myself, we often freeze up. What do you do? I don't know what to do. The average man or woman in the moment, the man on the street, doesn't really know what to do in a crisis situation, but if you take a trained professional, like a police officer, firefighter, a doctor, a nurse, some other emergency worker, it's the opposite. As I'm slowing down into a freezing posture, that man or that woman is just getting going. They kick into high gear and know exactly what to do. What looks impossible to my perspective as a civilian, they make look like child's play. In fact, what seems to come so naturally, though, to such a person is actually the result of thousands of hours of preparation, concentrated study, and rehearsal of dozens, if not hundreds, of various possible what-if scenarios. And this is the kind of spiritual character our Lord Jesus Christ calls his disciples to be prepared to express in their coming hour of crisis. Nothing short of an expert Christian witness as the ending of the ages collapses upon them. In our passage this morning, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And when he's asked by his disciples who wonder how they'll know when such an unbelievable thing could happen, something they can't even imagine, what signs should we be looking for? Jesus provides them with the exact information they need to respond like experts, like a trauma doctor or an ER nurse. Even though at the moment of his speaking to them, they're not prepared to respond as they should. By the instruction of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and frequent revisitation of his teaching, they will be equipped both spiritually and practically to do as they should. You see, Christ is a good shepherd. He's determined that his followers will be well provided for long after his departure so that nothing and no one can take them out of the path, even an unimaginable calamity and trial such as we have in our passage this morning. But there's more here in this morning's passage than preparing the disciples for an emergency. Jesus is also advertising that in himself, the Lamb of God, the true dwelling of God, the tabernacle of God amongst men, in himself, with the destruction of the temple, is being raised a living temple, he himself being the access point for all of God's people, not just Jews but Gentiles, and every nation under heaven will come to God through him, the living Lord. The point is there's more here than just a guide for the disciples and their followers in the first century. He's also equipping all of God's people for all time and how we should respond under similar circumstances, be they small or large. This isn't just training on how to react when the Roman armies of General Titus surround the city of Jerusalem and set fire to the temple of the Jews. Indeed, the destruction of the temple that's in my text this morning is a prefigurement of the destruction of the world. And the disciples come to this conclusion immediately. We'll see it as I read it in a moment. 
For those of us that are reading the story today, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed many, many centuries ago. In that regard, the specific instruction that these men are given doesn't apply to us. Go here, go there, do this, do that. But God does not want you to be ignorant about how you should respond at the end of days. So in between these specific instructions are general guides and counsels for all Christians of all time that I find are sorely lacking in the church today. That in avoiding these apocalyptic passages, which I tend to do as a preacher, I admit it, we also avoid the great, deep, profound, necessary instruction we need to live as Christians in a difficult and a dark age. So I want to read the text this morning, and after I read the text, I'm going to retell the story line by line. I don't want you to think I'm skipping anything here just because it's hard. And in retelling the story, we're going to see how carefully our Lord prepares his followers for the coming calamity, which is the end of the temple. That's my sermon's title this morning, the end of the temple. But second, I want to show you how you can learn from the disciples' instruction. I want to show you how Jesus is teaching you also how he wants you to be prepared for the end of the world and the coming judgment or your death, whichever may come first. So let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy word in Mark chapter 13. Our text takes us through verse 23. It's a long passage of scripture. Let's give our attention to his holy and inerrant word. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And whenever they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you shall say, but whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will be against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let the one who is on the housetop go down, not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God has created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Let us pray. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ has been read, O God. You have revealed it to your servant, Mark, the close companion of Peter. And now we've read it. Please enable the preacher to speak your truth and all of us as hearers to think about what's being taught, to reflect on it, and to apply it to our lives. May we not be changed. The time for change is not tomorrow or tonight, it's now. So we ask, Lord, that you would do the work through your Holy Spirit. Amen. In this passage, we see Jesus discussing the end or the destruction of the temple in a three-part story. We see first his prophetic announcement of the end of the temple, then a two-stage preparation he gives to his disciples so they can be ready for this catastrophic event. It's a spiritual preparation and a practical preparation. And finally, he ends with some pastoral counsel to these, his followers. First, he makes a prophetic announcement. We see this in the first four verses of Mark chapter 13. And he came out of the temple, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? In these verses, we see that Jesus has concluded a confrontational series of teachings. For now, almost three whole chapters in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has come to the temple with the hallelujahs of the children. The palm branches are on the road as he's walking up from the Mount of Olives through the gates. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And he goes to the temple. And Mark tells us he looks around. And then the next day, Mark tells us he comes into the temple and he turns over the tables of the money changers. It's a much misunderstood passage, but Jesus, in doing this, is recognizing that the purpose of the temple is not human commerce, but it's meeting with God. It's the place where God and man meet. And they turned it into a den of thieves, he says. And many churches who prioritize taking people's money need to hear this. The point of church is to introduce people to God, not to take their money. 
So Jesus is acting like a, like a modern Jeremiah. He's moving into the people and he's bringing a hard word from Almighty God and they don't like it. And all of a sudden they start plotting in Mark 11 how to kill him, to take him, to seize him, to arrest him. So verse after verse, we see this building anticipation of this confrontational instruction. They throw him a question, he bats it back, and then he asks him one they can't answer. They throw him another question, he bats it back and asks him two that they can't answer. And finally, after these, they have nothing to say. And he says, that's it? That's all you got? You gave me your fastball, your hardball, you're playing major leagues here, guys? And he says, since you have nothing to say, I'm going to ask you a question. And they're left utterly speechless. This is a confrontational series of instruction. And so verse 1 of the text says, Jesus comes out of the temple. God, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, leaves the temple. We can't miss that. He's abandoning this human artifice of greed and power that was a monument to man's arrogance and pride. It had become a bastard temple. It was no longer a place where people met with God. This is a place where power and pride and religious uniforms were put on display and parading how important I am, how godly I am, how close to God I am. How about you? How are you doing? Well, I'm making my way. I'm in the outer court. You're in the inner court. All of man's pomp and show. This is like a university graduation where all the professors have their hats and gowns and their staves of gold. And Jesus leaves it behind. He leaves the temple. Now, if you know your Bibles, you'll know that this is really an echo of Ezekiel chapter 10. Where the Spirit of God in the days of exile is described in Ezekiel as rising from the temple and going to the Mount of Olives next to the temple. This is not a good place to be. The place where man is to meet with God on earth, the temple, now the very Spirit of God, which is the means of meeting God, is leaving the temple. And then we see our Lord correcting an apostolic error. They're so taken, they're so smitten with this magnificent building. It's the building of buildings. One commentator said the stones of the temple are like 40 feet long and, and over 300 tons. You can tell a visitor to the city because they're walking around with their mouth open. That's me. These impressive buildings, the new Comcast Tower, the Empire State, Freedom Tower. Wow. And Jesus says, not one of those 300-ton stones will be left on top of another. It's all coming down. And the disciples who see the temple and the world as twin brothers, I mean, the world would sooner blow up than the temple of God blow up. Disciples saying, well, when is the world going to end? And they rush in their, in their earthly misunderstanding. They rush to the assumption that just because the temple is being destroyed, that the world also is being destroyed. And the answer is not yet. First things first. This temple has to go. It has to go. 
And it has to go not just because of the arrogance that I've described of the religious people. It has to go because until it's gone, his resurrection won't have the sparkle that it deserves. You see, Jesus said of himself, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I am the meeting place between God and man. Not the priest, not the Levite, not the lamb. Me. I'm the priest that brings you to God. I'm the lamb who sheds his blood so that you never have to bring another sacrifice. I am the life-giving spirit who pours out heavenly life on your sorrow, sorrowful, sad earthly existence. I'm the one that elevates you from, from living with two clay feet on the planet so that you can have your mind in heaven and see things of God and live the life that God intends you to live. This temple has to go, not just because of corruption, but because of my transformation, my resurrection life. So he makes a prophetic announcement. That's the first part of our story. The second part of the story, after he makes this prophetic announcement, he gives instructions to his disciples. Is a two-phase, a set of two different instructions. It's the longest section of our text. I'm going to be brief in this section. The first phase, it's the spiritual phase. It's the most important. I think of it as the highest priority. And, of course, having our our minds and our hearts prepared for a disaster is much more important than having a checklist. Because in the moment, you might forget the checklist. You're going to respond automatically. And he wants to get into their hearts, into their minds, their spiritual preparation. This is the first phase. He says in verses 5 and 6, Beware of deceivers. In verses 7 and 8, as the temple is about to be destroyed, it's still in the future by at least 20 or 30 years. He says, expect natural disasters and man-made disasters. And then verses 9, 10, and 11, as he describes them being brought in persecution before the reigning authorities, Jewish and Gentile authorities, the Romans and the Jews would would persecute the Christians at this time. He says you need to depend on the Spirit. And then verses 12 and 13, he says the persecution isn't all going to be out in the city square. It's going to be at the dinner table. And it's going to be in the kitchen and in the backyard where husbands and wives are divided over my name. Parents and children are divided over my name. Brothers, brothers are divided over my name. That's the spiritual phase, the practical phase, the second stage of his two-stage preparation of his disciples as he answers their question. They say, when will this be? The second phase is a little more practical or pragmatic. In the spiritual phase, he says, these are just the beginning of the birth pangs. They weren't the immediate catastrophe. This is the sign that it's close, but don't jump to conclusions. In the second phase, it's happening. Jerusalem is surrounded by armies or they're on their way. Sometimes in the ancient world, it would take weeks or months to find out that a war was taking place and the panic that ensued, just not knowing where they were and when they were coming would have been horrifying. The text tells us in this second phase, you need to escape trouble. 
He says, flee to the mountains. And we have an echo here of the book of Genesis chapter 19 when Lot and Abraham leave the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and go to the hills because God is sending down the fire of his judgment on these two ancient cities. Flee to the hills, escape trouble. This is not cowardice. This is practical godliness. Get out. Trouble's coming. And then they need to respond quickly and decisively. And a, a, a Palestinian or a Jewish roof would, would be flat. And it'd be like an extra bedroom. It'd be like, you know, you could, you could live on the roof. And sometimes it would be where the guest quarters were. And there was a, a ladder or a means to get on the roof from the outside. They're saying, don't go back down into the house from the roof. Leave like the guest would leave on the outside. Just leave. An immediate, decisive response is called for in Then in verses 17 and 18, he says, pray for mercy. These are painful, difficult days for for the vulnerable amongst us, for the pregnant moms and and the nursing mothers and children. Some of them might not even make it. And in fact, when when the temple was destroyed and when Jerusalem was sacked by Rome under General Titus, many, many women and children were murdered. Pray for mercy. Pray that God would, this would not happen in a storm. Pray that it would be good weather. Pray that you can get out quickly. Pray that it's not in winter. Pray that if, if it's going to be this long, ask God that he might shorten it for the sake of his people. Lord, we're crying out in distress, it says, when the people were in bondage in Egypt. And God heard their cry, and he came and redeemed them. Pray for mercy. And then finally, they need to persevere through suffering and trouble in verses 19 and 20 of the text. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not shortened those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. You need perseverance to get through this. You're going to get to your end multiple times before it's done. So with this spiritual and practical instruction, Jesus gives the disciples who are asking them a substantial blueprint about how they're to prepare for this utterly horrific crisis which is going to unfold. The end of the temple. It's total and utter annihilation. Now there's one element. I said I was going through verse by verse. I skipped one verse. It's this question of when that they ask, when will these things be? And the the exact answer to that is actually in verse 14 of our passage. The text says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it not to be, let the reader understand, then flee to the hills. What is this abomination of desolation? This strange phrase is used by Daniel in his prophecy and his vision three times in Daniel 9 in Daniel 11, and Daniel 12. Jesus knew his Bible. And Jesus read Daniel, and he took this symbol, this strange phrase, the abomination of desolation, and he said the things that it was describing in Daniel's day were small change compared to what they're going to symbolize in our day. So he took a strange symbolic phrase, this abomination of desolation, which we don't need to get into what it means in Daniel this morning, and he said, that's nothing. 
compared to this abomination of desolation. This is how prophecy works, you see. There is sometimes a a near reference to the prophecy that happens in the prophet's own day or, or maybe a generation or two beyond the prophet. God truly giving them a vision of the future. It's cloudy. They, they don't see it at, you know, like, you know, by the second, but they see in general terms what's going to happen. And yet, because God is the author of all of history, those proximate fulfillments of prophecy in the Old Testament sometimes have a more ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament and even in the end of the age. And that's the abomination of desolation. Well, what was it in Jesus' day? Well, here we go. All the pastors and all the theologians love to debate what the abomination of desolation is. And while they're debating, the world is dying. I don't know what it is. Maybe it was Caligula in 39 to 41 who wanted to erect an effigy of his own face. He was such a handsome guy. I thought he thought maybe God wants to see me close up and he's going to put his face on the altar in the temple. Well, that's an abomination. For whatever reason, Caligula died before he could do that. So I don't think it was that. Maybe it's the destruction of the temple itself. Such an abominable act. It's a turning Jerusalem into a wilderness, desolate place. Because the temple is on fire. But the scholars think that this is a person, not a thing. Well, maybe it's General Titus. I'm told by Josephus that Titus, as the temple was on fire, went into the Holy of Holies where no man should go just to look around. That's an abomination. Some people think that it's Jewish zealots who occupied the temple grounds prior to the Jewish war as part of their revolt. They overtook the high priesthood, which was an abomination. I don't know what it is. But it already happened. That's the point. The temple has been destroyed Mark's readers knew. He said, let the reader understand. This isn't Daniel. This is new. They, they somehow knew what this was. This, by the way, relates to a certain view of eschatology. Even if the disciples didn't know exactly what it meant, the whole passage is filled with assurances that God is in control. Nothing that's happening here is the temple era is coming to a close as the door is closing on the old testament as the sacrifices once and for all are being put aside nothing is happening by chance god is not caught off guard in a sense there's a certain virtue then to the millennial view which i love the all millennial view it will all work out to the glory of god and for your good so stop debating about the abomination of desolation and start preparing yourself for the end of the age, which is upon us even now. Which brings me to the third point this morning, how Jesus pastorally prepares his followers with a final word of counsel. He gives them a warning. He says, beware of those people who manufacture a self-made, man-made, man-honoring deliverance, false messiahs, he says, False prophets, verse 22, 21. I think Jesus has in mind here the would-be successors to Moses who Moses warned them about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. 
But there's a blessing as well. Don't worry. Not just a warning, but a blessing. Jesus ends with this pastoral counsel. Don't worry. God is in control of this whole situation. As horrible as it will be, I have told you everything in advance. You know all that you need to know. You are prepared. Verse 23. And among that information is a very encouraging note. God's people, though they will suffer greatly during this time, will struggle, but you will not fall away. You will stumble, but you will rise again like the righteous man in Proverbs, because God is gracious and powerful to preserve his children through every season of trouble, even the worst of them. Now, we've been learning this morning about a complicated passage of Scripture, one that I've spent a lot of time in my life avoiding. There are things in the, in the Bible that I don't want to preach. This is one of them. I worked hard in my preparation this morning to, to break it down for you. And I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I shouldn't be avoiding this. Neither should you. This text is extremely helpful. It has some very, very useful information that we need in order to live lives for God today. Even though the temple era has closed, even though God shut the door on all the sacrifices, even though the temple itself has, has been destroyed as predicted here, that, that alone glorifies God. But from where we stand today, even though the temple has been destroyed and some of these specific instructions don't apply to us, indirectly they all do. This end of the temple has been given to us in the Bible as a prefigurement of the end of the world. The disciples were just a little wrong. They weren't all wrong. Jesus says the temple's going to be destroyed. They say, when's the end of the world going to be? Because they both have to happen at the same time. He says, no, there's, there's, there's time between these two things. But the same kinds of behavior, the same mindset, the same spiritual preparation, and some of the same practical preparations are necessary for us today. Here's two. One is, you need patience. You notice how the disciples assumed that the end of the temple would immediately bring about the end of the world. That's why they asked in verse 4, what will be the sign of the coming end of all things? Jesus, since you're predicting the end of this amazing temple, this indestructible temple, surely the world isn't long to follow. The answer that he gives is not satisfying to them, at least not at this point. He calls on them to show remarkable, superhuman, heaven-sent patience in the face of an awful crisis. The patience shows up many times in our passage. Verse 5, see to it that no one leads you astray. We need to be patient when we hear news that comes our way, not to be deceived or led astray with false reports. Verse 7, do not be alarmed. We need patience in our emotions when we see all kinds of calamities in the world, natural calamities, man-made disasters. You need patience in affliction and suffering, especially that which comes because you're a committed Christian. See, the church is declining in some ways, but in other ways it's, it's growing like weeds. It's declining in this country. It's growing in Africa and Asia. It's declining where we're fat and lazy and rich and wealthy and self-confident and self-assured and defending our freedoms. The church is sinking under a weight of idolatry in this country. 
but in Africa and Asia and South America where people can't enjoy or don't have what we have, the church is thriving. Patience and affliction and suffering is something we need to learn from those Christians. The only reason, for example, the church I grew up in, the United Methodist Church, hasn't completely and wholly abandoned itself to utter apostasy is because of the African United Methodists who are holding fast the gospel while the American United Methodists are making a party of apostasy. And that's my own denomination. Verse 11, do not be anxious about what you will say. We need patience in waiting for God's prompting as your witness or defense in this case. Since there's a time to prepare what you want to say, but this kind of situation, you need to be patient. God's going to tell you what you need to say at the right moment. Verse 12, brother will deliver brother to death. You need to be patient in the midst of the most personal, intense kinds of suffering. Verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. You need patience and endurance. Salvation isn't complete until you finish the race. It's not once saved, always saved. This is not a golden ticket to do whatever you want. It's persevering, painful, difficult, narrow, hard, walking by faith, step by step, day by day, sometimes moment by moment, in the midst of a fog. Verse 19, in those days there would be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation, so patience in the midst of unimaginably difficult trials. And patience waiting on God to shorten that which we think we can no longer endure. Verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short those days. So you need patience, but another lesson you need to gather from these words is the crucial place of faith in the Christian's life. Faith. Walking by faith in the midst of any suffering, but especially the suffering which comes upon Christians as it is today at the end of the age. They needed faith as the old covenant was coming to a close, and we need faith today as the end of the world is drawing near. You must have faith. Faith is the ability to continue in patience. Patience is meaningless without faith. By faith, you're supplied with strength from God to be the patient, faithful Christian that you want to be. Faith is the fuel for patience. Faith is the connection between you and your meager resources and God and his abundant treasury. Faith is the hand that lays hold of the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is patience. Faith is the ability to obey and not feel it, to obey and not believe it, to obey and not want it. Faith anchors you to the mind of God, even though your mind, like a boat on the ocean, wanders to and fro. Faith is the power to live for God when every fiber of your body wants to quit. Faith is the mean by which the believer enters the temple made without hands in heaven, the original for which the earthly temple was but a poor copy and finds perfect supply of grace and help in his hour of need. The great Scottish nonconformist preacher Samuel Rutherford had faith so that he could endure the ridicule and persecution, the arrest, and ultimately his death for holding fast to the gospel 
in an apostate land. He refused to compromise the truth despite pressure to the contrary. He writes of the departed saints in heaven, if you knew the mind of the glorified in heaven, they think heaven come to them at an easy market. Translation, if you could see what Doris sees and all the glory that she now enjoys, she would look back on every single trial every single suffering that she went through in this life and say, that was it? For this? I get this? For that? Faith is God's math. And he says, you get this for that. You get this large thing for this small thing. Pascal said, it is foolishness to make an eternity out of nothing and nothing out of an eternity. Faith does the opposite. Faith makes an eternity out of eternity and nothing out of nothing. Faith walks boldly as in the daytime in the presence of heaven's invisible immensities and blindly, ruthlessly, determinedly ignores the world's cheap treasures. Faith acts boldly for God. Faith does great things for God. It goes big. It doesn't stay small. It declares nothing is too much for my Lord's service. No hardship. No difficulty. No ask. No embarrassment. No sacrifice. No pain. Faith does not see the pain. It sees the gain. It doesn't see the cost but the prize. Not the rod but the staff. It doesn't see the waiting. It receives what it waits for. In fact, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. This is faith, and this with patience is the way you're to live until the end of the world. You can't wait till tomorrow to practice these things. Jesus is coming quickly, or your end, for all we know, may be this very day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of the Lord. Lay hold of Christ by faith. Renew your vows to the Lord. Get started in His service. It's never too late. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labors in the Lord are not in vain. Lo, I am coming quickly, says the Lord Jesus. Maranatha, anathema. Father, as we end our service this morning, we ask that you would take what has been preached and apply it to our lives. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.